So in the states that repealed these laws, they had 30% more hospitals in across the entire state. And then about 15% more surgery centers. And that's just, it's just crazy to think that on a per capita basis, that some states just have that many more healthcare providers. Um, it just it just boggles the mind until you step back and you ask yourself, what is the regulatory landscape? How easy it is to actually open one of these. That is Charlie Katabi. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is healthcare. Specifically, we're going to be talking with Charlie Katabi and Jason Edson about certificate of need laws. What are they? What are they supposed to do? And what do they do in reality? Let me take a little bit and introduce you to both Jason and Charlie. Charlie is a health policy analyst with the Stand Together community, and Jason is part of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation. He's a trainer with the Education and Training Department, but he also works in emergency services as a paramedic. Both of these gentlemen have firsthand knowledge of certificate of need laws. Let's lean on their expertise on this issue and learn more about them. I remember the first time I heard about certificate of need. I was sitting in a state senator's office in Jefferson City, Missouri, and the state senator that whose office I was occupying was a doctor in Missouri, and he was telling me about all the hate mail and basically shade that he got from the hospital associations across Missouri. And I said, well, why, why do you, you're a doctor, why do you have problems with all these folks? And he says, because I'm trying to get rid of con laws. I hate con laws, and I think we need to get rid of them in the state. And that followed, uh, that was shortly followed by me saying to him, what's a con law? Help me understand that. And Jason, as you've said before, there are generally a couple different kinds of people. There are those who've heard of con laws and those who haven't. And those, what is it? Explain that to me, your, your explanation of who knows about con laws. Yeah, I always seem to be two types of people whenever I travel the country talking about them. It's either people have never heard of these laws before and have no idea what I'm what I'm introducing, or they interact around them so often they have a tattoo on their arm listing everything they cover. There and there is no middle ground. So for those who have never heard of these laws before, Charlie, can you give me just kind of a, a 50,000 foot level understanding of what a certificate of need is and why these things are on the books. Sure. So I'm going to give you the short answer and then the long answer. <laughs> so the short answer for your listeners to understand is certificate of need laws are a barrier to health care. There are these laws in the books that say that if you are a company, a fully licensed company that wants to open any sort of healthcare facility, open a new hospital, a new nursing home, a new surgery center, or even if you're an existing hospital that wants to add a service, 
the certificate of need law says you cannot unless you go through a lengthy expensive process and so once i got through the what exactly the short answer is it's a barrier to high quality health care now the long answer is these are commissions that are run by the state that get to review all of these applications from healthcare providers that want to open a new facility. These are providers that want to open these new facilities. And, but unfortunately, like with any other service, they can't just open and start providing a new service or open a new facility. What these laws say is they need to prove that the patients, the consumers, and the community that they want to open in, they need these services. And this is unlike anything else in our economy, in our society. If a grocery store wants to open, they'll do some research, they'll ask, they'll look into the community, and then they'll open. And they run the risk on whether they'll do well or if they won't. But in this sense, in healthcare, a hospital needs to make the case. They need to ask permission from a government board, hey, I would like to build, add this new service, Here's the research on why this community needs this service. And then the commission will then make a decision to say yes or no. Um, so that's essentially how it works. And the really big reason why we are not the biggest fans of these commissions is because, one, there is no reason why these commissions need to exist in the first place, why we need to, why we need fewer healthcare services. And the second one is that the people that are in charge of these commissions would benefit from less choice and competition. The, the people that run these commissions, they're not selfless, disinterested bureaucrats. They're often people that run the local hospital association, run the local nursing home association, run the primary care association. So the people that are running these, these certificate of need commissions actually have an active commercial financial interest in making sure patients in these areas have as little choice and competition in their health care as possible. One way that I heard Jeremy Cady talk about it at a recent event in Missouri was he, he said, imagine that you have a great recipe for pizza and you've decided that you're going to share this recipe for pizza with the town. However, this town has a certificate of need process for pizza joints. And in order for you to start a new pizza place, you have to go before Papa John's, Pizza Hut, Papa Murphy's. You have to go before all the uh, other pizza places and say, I would like to compete with you in this market. And I think the market uh, can provide or is, you know, has room for me. And then you have to get permission from everyone else competing in that area to whether or not you can open. And that sounds bad enough. But the more I started thinking about this, it isn't just opening a new pizza place, is it? It's You could even be an established pizza joint and say, you know what? We need another oven. And in order to put in another oven, you have to go to the other people. We need more tables. You'd have to go to the other businesses. Anything you want to do to improve your business would have to go before your competition and they would have to give you permission in order to expand and improve what you're doing. Jason, does that, is that a good 
interpretation of what certificate need of need laws do in the healthcare market? I think it is. Actually, I really like it. The the oven was the one that came to mind as soon as you started mentioning that because it's the same thing. It's I use the example of an MRI machine a lot because all of us have either seen one on any doctor show or been in one. And yeah, if you are doing this great business, you're serving your community and you're getting a lot of people through the MRI machine you have and you realize this population has gone up. I have a lot more clients. I have a lot more folks I'm trying to help and I want to open a second machine so I can get more people. Yeah, your competition has a say in whether or not you can open that. And I I can't imagine the position they're put in. So I'm not trying to make anybody seem like a bad guy, but I can't imagine your business. Now, what incentive would you have for saying, yes, I want my competitor to have more opportunities and have more. And I I, want to hurt my business. So I, I can't imagine being put in that position. But at the same time, we need to get rid of those laws so we can have that natural competition and allow businesses to grow as they naturally should. Charlie, this seems like such a ridiculous thing to me that I'm having a hard time understanding how something like this even becomes law. So can you help me understand a little bit about the history and the thinking behind this? Why is this why is this thing even exist? Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it cuz it none of this makes sense the more you read about it. I mean, when you first get into it and the more you read about it, it just keeps becoming more nonsensical. So these laws came into effect starting in the 1960s when the federal government established Medicare and Medicaid, two giant programs that were going to be delivering a lot more health care to a lot more people. And as this happened, there was a concern in Washington that as these dollars were just surging into these communities, that there would be a rise in healthcare prices. So one solution that came out, and I'm still trying to figure out what human being and what group of individuals thought this was a good idea, came up with this idea, the way to to lower prices and control spending is to reduce the options patients have and reduce competition in that marketplace. So as part of Medicare and Medicaid, Congress added a stipulation that said, hey, states, if you want all this Medicare and Medicaid funding, we are not going to force you. But if you want this money, you need to establish these certificate of need laws. And so lo and behold, every state in the country followed suit and established these commissions that set up these really complex, weird systems when when any new hospital wants to open, they have to go to this commission. And the commission reviews their detailed applications and looks at finding out if there was an actual need for these services. And so that's how they came about. Um, But then a little bit of history later, this ultimately became a program that the federal government actually repealed. The federal government found, lo and behold, when you reduce the choices that patients have and you give existing sellers more power, they get to raise prices because they have less competition. This is not rocket science, people. So that's what they found. They found that when this happened, healthcare prices skyrocketed. So what did they do? They repealed this requirement on states. And they said, we are no longer going to require you to have these laws on the books 
that make healthcare less scarce and less available. And lo and behold, 15 states did, thankfully. A big problem, though, is by then, this was 20 years after these laws went into effect, hospital associations and interest groups, they became dependent on these associate on these commissions to stay in business. A part of their business model was using these certificate of need commissions and these laws to keep out their competition so that they could keep prices high on consumers. And that's where we are today right now. Healthcare prices are out of control. Everyone knows this. But a big reason why, unfortunately, and unfortunately people don't know about this, is because Healthcare associations, especially hospitals in particular, have been doing a very good job at making sure that their business is kept out of business because of these laws and commissions. Dwayne, I just want to double down on what Charlie said, that every time I hear it, even the federal government said these regulations are so bad that they repealed them. I can't think of something that was as widespread a certificate of need that even the federal government said these are not good. I just, that one piece of information just blows my mind and says the remaining 35 states need to repeal their individual laws. Go oh, ahead. I was just going to say, they didn't just say that one time, Jason. They repealed this law, but ever since then, the Federal Trade Commission, this is the government, this is the the federal government's agency that tries to promote competition and reduce monopolies in the marketplace. Every year, they send these lengthy letters and testimonies to lawmakers in these certificate need states, asking them, begging them to repeal these laws and telling them that you are harming patients, you are raising prices on patients, and you're making healthcare less accessible because you are keeping out high quality competitors, offering them more choices. So knowing that it does create problems, that it is an existing barriers, that even the federal government says this is bad and is annually begging these barriers to be removed. How are how is the existence of this this law justified? What is it that, that proponents of it are saying that they think justifies its existence? I mean, for starters, they tell a litany of falsehoods about what these laws do how it affects those communities, and what would happen if these laws went away. So the number one thing that they tell tell voters and they tell lawmakers in particular, they say that if you repeal these laws, you won't be improving more improving the number of hospitals that are available. What they'll say is there'll be new competitors that will come up, and then the existing hospitals will fall. And they will fall because these other these new hospitals and these new competitors, they'll take all the most profitable patients, and then the existing hospitals will go out of business because it will only be taking care of uninsured patients, patients that need charity care. And that is a complete, it's a complete falsehood. There is so little honesty in actually what happens when these laws actually go away. And what happens is the existing hospitals don't go out of business. They just face more competition. And ultimately, and I'm happy to talk about why that's a good thing, but the doomsaying about how this will lead to a fall and a 
just the closing of existing hospitals is not true. And those falsehoods just permeate and poison this entire discussion um, on how to actually fix our healthcare system. Yeah, it just it just never happens in the states that have repealed, whether it was 30 years ago or the states some three, four years ago that did. It just it never came true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that I see a lot in kind of that same vein is that, well, if we have more people doing the same thing, they'll be less skilled because they won't be doing that skill or won't be seeing as many patients. So they'll be significantly less skilled. And I bring that up because I take that one very personally. I am a medical provider myself still. Um, I've been in emergency medicine for 20 years. I'm still a paramedic. I've worked in deep, deep urban areas with a population of hundreds of thousands. And I worked in a rural county where each town had two to 500 people in it. Some of the most talented providers I have ever met in my life were in rural Vermont. And some of the most talented providers I've ever met have been in cities in Massachusetts. Your quality has nothing to do with if there's another competition down the road or if there's five offices open in in your city versus two. It's your culture and it's your organization. So if an organization wants to come in and say, we want to provide the best training, we want to do the best work, and we want to do the most amazing thing with our equipment, great. I love it. I switched companies once because the company pitched that to me. Uh, it's, that's valuable. So I, I, that's another one that just, it's not true. And quite frankly, it's kind of insulting. When you look at how long we've had between when the federal government got rid of this mandate and states started opting out, we're, we're talking decades here. So there should be some data showing the difference between certificate of need states and non-certificate of need states. Can you tell me a little bit about the differences you see between the two the two states? Yeah, it's a it's actually a world of difference, particularly in rural areas, which is an issue that a lot of our states are looking at right now. So, in the states that repealed these laws, they had thirty percent more hospitals in across the entire state, and then about fifteen percent more surgery centers. And that's just, it's just crazy to think that on a per capita basis, that some states just have that many more healthcare providers. Um, it just, it just boggles the mind until you step back and you ask yourself, what is the regulatory landscape? How easy it is to actually open one of these? And there's actually, and there's a complete world of difference. It could take months. It can take years to get a new hospital approved in a new area for all the reasons I and Jason mentioned. The people that benefit from less competition, they're the ones rejecting these applications on these commissions. And furthermore, even if there isn't somebody on the commission that is gunning to reject an application, existing providers can come and testify and lobby and urge this commission to reject applications. And this happens time and time again. And we see, and like I mentioned, like the, the results are just staggering. 30% fewer hospitals across the state and 15% fewer surgery centers. And that has a real impact on actually the quality of care if it's 
if healthcare is that scarce and if communities actually don't get that hospital that they that patients need or they don't get those services. Yeah, if I could interrupt with a story yeah. that I kind of existed in that with that being rural, we only have in my entire county, there are only two MRI machines, both located at the county hospital. So out of the dozens other doctor's offices, there's none. So I needed one. I had to travel two counties away. And we found out in that same study that Charlie mentioned, the fewer rural hospitals, there were more likely for if you live rural or outside of any urban area, just isolating for certificate of need, you were more likely to have to travel another county or two counties away to receive what everybody else considers basic medical care. That's a big barrier for people. And I've brought in people on the ambulance countless times. I brought someone in once having a stroke. This is a true medical emergency. And one of the ways that we can identify what's going on with the stroke and the proper way to treat it is an immediate CT scan. The sooner we get that patient into that machine, the more chance we have that you're going to be okay. I've met people, I witnessed the stroke, I brought them into the hospital, we got the CT machine, we got the right medicine, and a week later, he was up and walking and shook my hand to thank me. That is how vital that machine is. So our county's policy is if I'm bringing a stroke patient to the hospital, they clear the line on both machines. So there may be someone there for rehab. There may be someone there after a shoulder injury. There may be someone admitted to the hospital. So all the non-emergency stuff goes through these two machines. And you wait weeks, if not months, for an appointment. And then I come wheeling in, and they shut down both machines. Because if one machine breaks in the middle of that CAT scan, we're moving over to the other machine. And that's important. That's a good thing. This is life-saving interventions for people. But... It, I distinctly remember bringing in this woman once and there were three people lined up in the hallway just giving me death glares. And I realized later it was because they each waited a month for their appointment and now they had to miss the rest of their day of work. Their entire plan was messed up. They have nothing they can do for the day. Maybe they were fasting. They couldn't eat so they could get this. They could have a medication making them uncomfortable for this. I get it. Like, that's not great. But if we had the access to other machines, what if their doctor's office had a machine and just continually cranked out these non-emergency CAT scans in these non-emergency situations, leaving that machine empty more often for the paramedics and the emergency room staff, those who truly need it to be available right away? Charlie, when we look at the right now, surely there are some examples of states that were certificate of need states and then got rid of those laws, repealed them completely. What happened in those states after those barriers were removed? I mean, the biggest example is Florida. They're really the superstar state on removing certificate of need laws recently. No other state, I think, in the last several years has actually come close to doing what Florida has done. So they repealed their barriers in 2019. And just two months after these laws took effect, hospital groups announced a number of plans to open new bone marrow transplant facilities and just these this range of new expansions into um, into the communities where they were already serving. Um, I think this is just a huge, hugely important example that 
these laws and the, these reforms and these changes have some really immediate effects on patients' lives. Like opening, building and opening a new facility, you know, that's going to take time, but they now get to spend that time, you know, building a facility, hiring the necessary doctors and nurses and staff to staff it up and make sure that they're fully staffed to take care of uh, patients. But what's important is that they're putting that that work in to actually deliver care in a year or a year and a half or so instead of investing in lawyers and economists to beg and argue this to the certificate of need board that they need to build this. You know, it's it's really incredible once you step back and think about how me, how much money are doctors' offices and hospitals and nursing homes investing in lawyers and economists and just MBAs to make the case to these commissions on why service is needed instead of just actually delivering it. And it's it just boggles the mind to think that, you know, like Jason, you mentioned, like, it's so hard for people to get an MRI appointment. You know, imagine if instead of spending all that money on lawyers, imagine if that facility just put that money to adding more MRIs and adding new doctors to actually deliver those services. And it's just like, it's just a huge waste when you really step back and think about just how much money could have actually gone to actually just helping the patients that rely on you. One of the things I remember when I was talking with the state senator is, is he pointed out how much money the hospital, one specific hospital had at the end of the year. And th they were a nonprofit hospital. So you couldn't say they had $60 million in profit. I think that the phrase is revenue after expenses. Totally different than profit, right? <laughs> or something. And they said, well, you have to think about the fact that we're not, that's not profit that we're just putting in a bank. We're actually spending that on new equipment and on, on expanding services and on building, uh, bigger buildings. And while I'm listening to you all talk, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, how many more nurses could you have hired if you didn't need to spend money going to a certificate of need board? How, how much better could you improve your service with more staff? How much of that money, that revenue after expenses, are you spending to lobby instead of make care better? And that, I, I don't know, I can, the more I hear from you, you know, I like both of y'all, but you're really irritating me right now when we talk about this, because it is just a, a ridiculous idea. And what I want to ask now is how has the pandemic impacted the debate around this right now it's it's been interest it's been interesting for sure just to see the sea change so you know both of you have known me for a couple years and you've known that like afp afp hq and all of our state chapters we've been working on certificate need laws for years trying to share this data and this evidence with states and lawmakers to make them see the light that these laws are not serving your communities and they're making everyone, <laughs> you're making your communities sicker in a sense by just making it a lot harder for people to get health care. And it's just been an uphill battle and a slog. But then fast forward 
to March of last year when the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, we saw governors around the country issuing waiver after waiver, suspending their certificate need laws temporarily on an emergency basis. And they did it for a very big reason. Hospitals and nursing homes were being overwhelmed with COVID patients, and they did not have the facilities available or the staff available necessary to deal with this surge in demand for their services. And lo and behold, governors saw the light. They saw that there was a major barrier stopping these hospitals from adding more ventilators, adding more equipment, adding more hospital beds, which was extremely key. And they, and, and then governors in 24 states suspended their laws to allow hospitals to add more beds and add more ventilators. And it's just really been incredible to see that all, all of this change that's been happening, at least on a temporary basis. And it's been really inspiring to see that when these laws do go away, there is a really life-saving effect. There was actually a really cool study um, that was done that looked at what was the effect of ending these laws and what was the effect of how these changes affected COVID mortality. And they found that the number of COVID deaths as a share of the population in the states that waived these laws went down. And it went down for a very simple reason. There were fewer waiting times and there was quicker access to hospital beds and quicker access to doctors when hospitals had greater freedom and greater flexibility to simply deliver more care. Yeah, we've been sitting for 50 years and one of the Biggest things people have been saying to try to try to justify con laws is, well, it's for patient care, patient care, patient care. There's better patient care. And the first thing that they did, that the governors did when patient care was at risk, was suspend all the COVID, uh, all the con laws. So that's just, there's another argument that's completely gone because that was the first thing they did to help patients. And I remember a year ago, we were talking bed capacity. That's all the conversations, watching the reports out of New York City. It was all about bed capacity, bed capacity. And yeah, the most talented and the greatest healthcare providers in the world, if you overrun them with patients, there's going to be deaths and adverse outcomes simply because of that. And, you know, we spent tons of money. I was talking to someone from Kentucky and the pop-up hospital they built was $1.5 million just to open it up on day one. And then there were existing costs that the state had to carry. And those providers didn't just pop out of thin air. Every provider that comes in for these pop-up hospitals that are expensive has to be pulled from somewhere else. So in Massachusetts, people were coming from all over the state to move towards the middle of the state for these. So there were less nurses, less doctors, less specialists throughout the state to concentrate into this one area. And we pulled from other states. Without certificate of need laws, if these beds just existed, then they would have the staff around them. So if the hospital six years ago was able to add 200 beds, would we need the pop-up hospital? We would have people trained, people within the infrastructure already that can provide this care. I think it was Charlie that sent me this article right early in 2020 in Florida, in Clay County outside of Jacksonville. 
There was a hospital that in 2015 had a certificate of need denied for a 100-bed facility. Immediately upon that law, they dusted off that plan when they repealed the laws and said, we're building this hospital right now. So that's that. they believed in this project so much that they said, yep, now that they're repealed, we're in. This is 700 jobs, right from the article. This is 700 jobs, a 300,000 square foot facility and 100 beds. And again, it's that capacity, capacity, capacity we were talking about. This hospital will now open in 2022. So those are 100 beds that Clay County didn't have during the height of this pandemic that they could have had a certificate of need didn't exist. Thanks again to both Charlie and Jason for taking the time to talk with us about certificate of need laws. If you have any questions about this subject or this priority initiative or any of the other priority initiatives we've talked about, please feel free to send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. And if you haven't taken the time to leave a review of the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could take a few seconds on whatever service you're using and go ahead and drop a review. That'd be great. Thank you for that. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and we'll see you then.